1979, dozens of slain adolescent boys were discovered on California's enormous freeways, one of whom was as young as 12 years old. When authorities discovered the victims' remains, they indicated traces of brutal sexual assault along with the serial killer's signature death by strangulation and stabbing. He had accomplices, unlike most serial killers at the time. These associates assisted the freeway killer in carrying out murders between Los Angeles and Orange counties. The murderer utilised a variety of weapons for the killings, including an ice pick, a tyre iron and a jack handle. Found guilty of the murder of 14 teenage boys, this is part one of the case of William Bonin, also known as the Freeway Killer. Well, hello, my fellow weirdos. How is everyone? I hope everyone's having a fantastic week and I hope you are all doing well. So today, I've got a true crime case for you. I know, I know it's been a while. The last, you know, two episodes have been a little bit different. But going back to the tried and true, the good old serial killers. So I hope you are ready because this one, this one's something. I hope you all enjoyed last week's episode. It was amazing to record with Jenna and Danielle. We had an absolute blast. I can't wait to be on their show. And they were amazing guests. And yeah, it was an amazing, amazing hour and a bit. So merch news. I'm looking to add more items to the merch store soon. So please keep an eye out for that. And if you haven't looked at the merch store, please do. The hoodies have got some great feedback. The mugs and stickers have also got some great feedback. So treat yourself. Treat yourself. It is it is the season after all. <laughs> you know, just it's a late Valentine's Day present to yourself, right? That's allowed. So episode 14. Episode 14. Fucking hell. Well, fuck my ozone. Episode 14. William Model Human Bonin. Yet another serial killer from the 70s. Man, what was what was going on in the 70s? What was what was with all of these piece of shit humans in the 70s? Bonin, Kraft, Bundy, Ramirez, Kemper, Gacy, BTK, Kearney, you know, it's us, David Parker Ray. There's so many. It's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Jeez. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> it's me going on a rant about why the 70s was just full of serial killers in California. The William Bonin extravaganza will be a two-parter and disclaimer, like this episode especially, will contain some pretty nasty stuff uh, and there will be references to things such as rape, torture, abuse, sodomy, among other things. So that's just a little a little heads up. William Bonin was yeah, he was a he was a massive piece of shit. Massive, massive piece of shit. 
So, without further ado, let's get stuck in for part one, shall we? So, William George Bonin was born on January the twenty-eighth, uh, January the eighth, sorry, nineteen forty-seven, in Willimantic, Connecticut, the second of Robert and Alice Bonin's three boys. Bonin's father was an irritable man, irritable man and a compulsive gambler who was known to physically abuse his wife in front of his children and to beat his sons while his wife was away. On the other hand, his wife was an overbearing, codependent and passive woman. I mean, can you really blame her for being passive, let's be honest, who suffered from sudden and extreme mood swings and spent much of her free time at a bingo parlour, often while her sons were left unattended at the family home. So the perfect setting for Bonin to become an all-around great guy with absolutely no faults whatsoever. Both parents had a history of neglecting their children. Neighbours later claimed they couldn't recall either parent spending much time with them and would only occasionally give the siblings food and clean clothes out of sympathy. Furthermore, the boys were frequently placed in the care of their grandfather, who so happened to be a convicted child molester who had sexually molested his daughter, Bonin's mother, until she was an adolescent and is suspected of sexually abusing his three grandsons. Just gets better and better, doesn't it? (laughs) Bloody hell, I I shouldn't laugh. Uh, Bonin and his younger brother Paul were also occasionally left in the care of the eldest brother, Robert Jr., who routinely beat and belittled his siblings when both parents were absent from the home. Bonin's mother sent her sons to a Catholic convent in 1953, ostensibly to shelter them from their father's increasing physical aggression. For both minor and large violations of behaviour, this convent was notorious for severely chastising the children it kept, with penalties including severe beatings, enduring various stress positions and partial drownings in sinks filled with freezing water. The youngsters held in this convent are said to have been subjected to abuse that included having their heads submerged in toilets, uh, being beaten until they bled, and being assaulted with knives, among other things. Despite these sorts of abuse, records show that Bonin, a typically misbehaving child at home, performed admirably in the convent's tightly controlled environment. When recounting his childhood to psychologist Vonda Pelto, Bonin stated that, In my life, I never had nobody to help me. My father used to beat the shit out of me. My mother never stopped him. She put me in one of those boys' homes, and I got raped by these older guys. Bonin eventually spoke openly about many elements of his boyhood, and adolescence, but he refused to talk about the memories of the convent, except to say that he was afraid of an older boy and had only succumbed to his sexual advances after he had his wrists tied behind his back. Bonin began to believe his parents were dead when neither parent paid him a visit at the convent. Bonin stayed at the convent until he was nine years old and then returned to Mansfield, Connecticut to live with his parents. Bonin was caught at the age of 10 for stealing tags from car license plates and he was sent to a juvenile jail centre for a variety of minor offences. He was frequently physically and sexually attacked by at least one older kid and an adult counsellor who had been appointed to manage 
and monitor the juvenile offenders while incarcerated at this juvenile detention institution. Bonin began to sexually fondle his younger brother shortly after his release from uh, this juvenile jail centre. Bonin's parents chose to relocate from Connecticut to California in 1961 due to Bonin's uh, father's gambling addiction, which threatened the family's family home's foreclosure. The family rented a modest home in Downey, California at uh, 101802 Angel Street. A-N-G-E-L-L, Angel Street, Angel Street, Angel Street. It's one of the three. (laughs) I'm right. It's one of those three. Like, (laughs) oh dear. I can read. By the way, guys, just in case you were wondering. So not the ideal upbringing for for Willie. Not that he's going to get that much sympathy from me. Like, yes, it's shit that he had a fucked up childhood. Don't get me wrong. Being beaten and abused by your father while your mum sort of lets it happen, who is obviously also being abused herself. Um, and then, you know, getting likely sexually abused by your granddads and then beaten by your eldest brother. It's it's not ideal. So I get that. But at this at the same time, that's not really justification or an out for becoming the piece of shit garbage human that he became and to do what he did himself. So I get I have sympathy for his childhood, but also he didn't have to go in the direction that he went in, you know, but maybe that's just cold. I don't know. Maybe I'm just unsympathetic, but you know, it is what it is. Uh, Bonin went to Torrance North High School, where he was a social outsider and barely spoke to any of his classmates. As a teenager, his main hobby was bowling, which he continued throughout his adolescence. Bonin claimed that as a teenager, he was a quiet and lonely loner who felt uneasy in the company of his friends. He was also self-conscious about his appearance, refusing to smile in public due to his misaligned teeth. I mean, it could be worse. He could have had... I mean, have you seen... Has anyone seen Richard Ramirez's chompers? Like, that man should never smile or should never have smiled because those teeth were fucking gummy boy. Like, Jesus fucking Christ. Bonin had developed a relentless and compulsive fascination in paedophilia during his teenage years. Oh, that's, that's healthy. And he had also discovered his his homosexuality when he reached puberty. His sexuality was the source of a long-running feud with his mother, who saw his homosexual tendencies as a treatable social disease. Yes, as a treatable social disease. As an adolescent, Bonin only attempted to openly court and or interact with females on a few occasions. In addition to sexually fondling his younger brother, Bonin is accused of molestation of other neighbourhood youngsters while the family lived on on either Angel Street, Angel Street or Angel Street. (laughs) Many of the minors were persuaded into Bonin's home with the promise of drink and or pornography, and his mother would occasionally be present at these times. Neighbours reportedly recalled seeing young boys accompany Bonin into the house on a regular basis, some of whom 
they afterwards heard screaming and wailing. As a result, Bonin gained a reputation among locals as a child molester. Bonin is also reported to have committed a robbery, petty theft and grand theft uh, throughout his teenage years, in addition to these crimes of molestation. Bonin's mother, who is said to be very emotionally controlling and protective of her son, is said to have failed to accept the molestation and her son's general antisocial behaviour throughout his youth. Bonin became engaged to marry shortly after graduating from high school in 1965. This engagement was largely at his mother's behest, who believed that the prospect of marriage would quell her son's obvious homosexuality, though Bonin later described his um, acquiescence to his mother's pressure to become engaged as a big mistake on his part. Bonin enlisted in the United States Air Force at his mother's urging the same year he graduated, serving five months as an aerial gunner in the Vietnam War and logging over 700 hours of combat and patrol experience. Don't know why I said it like that. Experience. (laughs) Later, Bonin claimed that his experiences in Vietnam had imprinted in him the conviction that human life is overvalued. Bonin once sacrificed his own life to save the life of a wounded fellow airman while under enemy enemy fire. For this, he was awarded a medal for his bravery. Uh, Bonin later claimed to have had sexual intercourse with both males and females in Vietnam, where and he reportedly admitted to sexually abusing two fellow troops under the threat of death during the Tet Offensive. Bonin served in the Air Force for three years before being honourably discharged in October 1968 at the age of 21 and returning to Downey to live with his mother. His fiancée gave birth to their son not long after this. However, Bonin's fiancée later married another man after the couple split up. Probably a good move, if I'm going to be honest. Yeah, probably a good move. Not going not gonna to lie on that one. So a second disclaimer. Yes, this man needs two disclaimers. From So I, I've sort of touched upon some things which aren't great in that little opening section. But from here on out, and for a large chunk, or for the rest of this episode, to be honest, shit's going to get heavy and various things that I alluded to at the start of this episode come up and things that are probably worse. So it's, it's yeah, buckle up, buckaroos, because it's, it's not going to be great. Not going to be great. But we'll get through it together. We'll get through it together. So Bonin raped and sexually assaulted a 14-year-old boy on November the 17th, 1968. Over the next four months, he was to uh, perform three more sexual assaults on boys and youths. The victims of these four assaults ranged in age from 12 to 18, and in each case, he shackled or otherwise confined his victim before forcibly engaging in sodomy, oral copulation, and torch methods such as bludgeoning with a tire iron around the head and squeezing his victim's testicles. Yeah, and, and no, it's... It's not going to get any better than that as we go on. It's going to get worse. Aren't you glad you decided to listen to this? Please don't leave. (laughs) I need the downloads. Please stay. 
Bonin was arrested in early 1969 while attempting to restrain a 16-year-old he had lured into his vehicle. He was charged with five counts of kidnapping, four counts of sodomy, one count of oral copulation, and one count of child molestation against the five people he had abducted or assaulted, or in the case of the final youth he abducted, attempted to assault since the previous November. On January 1971, Bonin pled guilty to molestation and forced oral copulation and was sentenced uh, sentenced to the Astacadero State Hospital as a mentally ill sexual criminal who could be treated. Bonin was subjected to a battery of psychiatric tests while in custody at the hospital, which revealed that he had a higher than average IQ of 121, as well as signs of manic depression and damage to the prefrontal cortex of his brain, which would likely limit his ability to restrain any violent impulses. Bonin's physical examinations revealed extensive scars on his head and his bum, which he had likely sustained during his three years in the uh, Connecticut Juvenile Detention Center, despite his claim that he had no memory of how he had acquired these injuries, leading many experts to believe that Bonin repressed memories of his childhood abuse. They had also noted his problematic relationship with his overbearing mother, who, despite his emotional dependence on her, had a negative opinion of her son. Bonin was a non-violent, helpful and conscientious patient who consistently attended therapy groups and offered to participate in experimental programs while at the Astacadero Hospital. Bonin quickly began reciting what psychiatrists wanted to hear from him, believing he could trick them into getting him an early release. However, Bonin was sent to prison two years after arriving at the state hospital after being deemed inappropriate for further treatment, owing to his repeated sexual engagements with two mentally challenged inmates. He was released from prison on June the 11th, 1974, after doctors concluded that he was, and I quote, no longer a danger to the health and safety of others. No longer a danger to the health and safety of others. I'm going to say that again. No longer a danger to the health and safety of others. I, 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 I just, man is too stunned to speak. On September the 8th, 1974, three months after his release from prison, Bonin met a 14-year-old hitchhiker named David Allen McVicker in Garden Grove. Bonin offered to drive McVicker to his parents' house in Huntington Beach, which McVicker accepted. Bonin questioned McVicker if he was gay and if he had ever engaged in homosexual conduct shortly after entering his vehicle. Bonin pulled out a rifle and drove McVicker to a secluded field, where he forced McVicker to strip before beating and raping him in the front seat of his Opal Cadets. Bonin began strangling McVicker with his own t-shirt after assaulting him, but as McVicker pleaded for his life, Bonin stopped trying to kill him. We'll meet again, he said nonchalantly as he drove McVicker home. But remember, folks, this man was classed as someone who was no longer a danger to the health and safety of others. 
you know, just a regular old Joe was was old William Bonin. Before phoning a child abuse hotline, Vicar sobbed for several hours. He then called his mother, who drove home from work immediately and reported the event to Garden Grove Police. Bonin was charged with the rape and forcible oral copulation of a minor and the attempted abduction of a 15-year-old two days after his assault on McVicker. Bonin had sexually propositioned the 15-year-old who had declined Bonin's offer of $35 for sex and told him to get out of here in the second occurrence. Bonin retaliated by attempting to run the teenager over with his car. Not a danger, guys. Remember that. Not a danger. Bonin pled guilty to both charges and was sentenced to 1 to 15 years in prison on December the 31st, 1975, to be served at the California Men's Facility in San Luis Obispo. On October the 11th, 1978, he was freed from prison, albeit with 18 months of supervised probation. Bonin moved to an apartment complex in Downey, about a mile from his parents' house shortly after his release. Shortly after this, in late 1978, he met Everett Scott Fraser, a 43-year-old next-door neighbour. Bonin became a regular at Fraser's weekend gatherings, which were replete with young men, drugs and drink. Fraser would frequently present Bonin to his acquaintances as he observed him to be a respectable, peaceful man and the two would ex- also exchange anecdotes about their homosexual experiences. Bonin also developed a reputation among his neighbourhood's teenage males as a socialite who bought wine for minors and enabled them to socialise in his flat. What do you mean, like, that's weird? How is how is buying wine for minors and enabling them to socialise in his flat weird? I don't get I don't get what's weird about that. That's completely normal stuff. What are, you, what are you talking about? Weird. He also began seeing a young woman whom he often brought to Anaheim on Sundays to indulge in her pastime of roller skating, as he informed acquaintances. Bonin began working as a truck driver for Dependable Driveway, a Montebello delivery company in 1979, earning $5 an hour. Bonin would meet Vernon Robert Butts, a 21-year-old porcelain factory worker a cultist and part-time magician. <laughs> Jenna, Daniel, another fucking magician. They're everywhere. And Gregory Matthews Amiley, an 18-year-old Texan, through his frequent attendance at Fraser's gatherings. Butts had just been fired from his job as a store clerk due to his unkempt look and increasingly unpredictable behaviour, and he supplemented his income by charging $30 for private magic shows. Butts would apparently sleep in a coffin, which he also used as a coffee table and as a phone booth on occasion. Butts, a peculiar individual, had been bullied as a child because of his odd manner and interests. I can't imagine that surname helped in that situation. Butts became Bonin's friend and passive lover when Bonin proposed that the two of them rape and murder a hitchhiker together. Butts claimed to be both attracted to and afraid of Bonin, who he believed had a hypnotic hold over him. Bonin, on the other hand, admired Butts for his social popularity, which exasperated Bonin's low self-esteem 
due to his inability to socialise with others. Butts, um, who was a well-known game organiser for social gatherings, also introduced Bonin to the tabletop role-playing game Dungeons and Dragons, and the two periodically practised dark magic together. Butts openly, openly acknowledged that he enjoyed seeing Bonin torture and mistreat his victims. Miley, who was an illiterate Texas native with an IQ of 56, who supported himself through odd jobs, later actively engaged in two killings in which Bonin was present. Bonin admitted to psychotherapist to a psychotherapist that he had a sense of social connection with his accomplices that he had never felt before because of his lack of friends as a child. Bonin would tell von der Pelto, I met Vernon Butts and I admired him. He had it all together. Everybody liked him. It was cool having him like me. Made me feel really important. I never had no friends. Bonin had no friends? William Bonin was unpopular. Nah, 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 nah. Nah, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. Man is flabbergasted, ladies ladies and gentlemen. And now we get into the murder spree. Buckle up, buckaroos, because this ain't going to be pretty. This is not going to be pretty. Bonin's victims were mainly young male hitchhikers, schoolboys, or on rare occasions, male prostitutes. The victims, mostly uh, slim, fair-skinned teenagers with long hair, were lured or forced into his Ford Eco e- Econ Econoline Ford Econoline Ford Econoline van, <laughs> where they were overpowered and bound hand and foot with a combination of handcuffs, wire, and ropes. They were then raped, severely beaten in the face, torso, head, and genitals and tormented before being strangled with their own t-shirts, though some were stabbed or beaten to death. Darren Kendrick, who was one of Bonin's victims, was forced to swallow hydrochloric acid, and three others had ice picks shoved into their ears, and Mark Shelton, another victim, died of shock. But remember, not a danger to society, gang. Not a danger to society. According to one attorney present during Bonin's subsequent confessions, the escalating levels of brutality he had shown towards his victims had been like that of a drug addict who needed an ever greater increase of dosage to achieve a satisfactory level of euphoria. Bonin himself later emphasised to neurologists that he had felt an intense sense of excitement as he drove in search of his victims, barely able to wait until dusk to begin his cruising. Bonin had removed all inner handles from the passenger side and rear doors of his van to reduce the possibilities of a possible victim fleeing and hid ligatures, knives, household tools and other items in his vehicle to aid the restraint and torture of his victims. The victims were frequently murdered inside his van before the bodies were dumped beside or near roadways around Southern California. Bonin, who regarded murder to be a group sport, was aided by one or more of his four known accomplices in at least 12 of the deaths. The first murder charge, um, or the first murder that Bonin was charged with was the murder of a 13-year-old boy named Thomas Glenn Lundgren. Lundgren? Lundgren? 
Lundgren, I think. On May the 28th, 1979, Lundgren was last seen leaving his parents' home in Reseda at 10.50am. Lundgren apparently informed friends shortly before his kidnapping that a stranger had promised to meet him at a skate park to take shots of him for a skateboarding magazine, which, to nobody's shock, was not true. The following afternoon, his body was discovered in Agora, uh, dressed only in a t-shirt, shoes and socks. Lundgren had been emasculated and bludgeoned in the face and head, with many fractures in his skull, according to an autopsy. The teen had also been cut across the throat, stabbed repeatedly in the chest and stomach, and strangled to death. His underpants, jeans and severed genitals, which also had several bite marks, were found strewn in a field near his body. Butts is accused of accompanying or or assisting Bonin in at least eight more murders attributed to the freeway killer. Bonin was arrested again in Dana Point, California uh, in mid-1979 for abusing a 17-year-old. Bonin should have been returned to prison for violating his parole conditions. However, a administrative error made prior to Bonin's planned court case resulted in his release. A fucking admin error, people. An admin error. <laughs> a fucking admin error. Oh. Fraser headed to the Orange County Jail to pick up Bonin, who had been detained there. He later said that he drove that as he drove Bonin home, Bonin made a statement that Fraser mistook for an expression of regret at the time, saying, no one's going to testify again. This is never going to happen to me again. On August the 4th, 1979, Bonin and Butts kidnapped a 17-year-old named Mark Shelton as he walked from his Westminster home to a movie theatre near Beach Boulevard. I just want to say... Bonin and Butts sounds like some sort of buddy cop duo. First, there was Starsky and Hutch. Now, it's time for the wacky adventures of Bonin and Butts. Alas, their adventures were certainly not wacky. (laughs) Neighbours reported hearing screams coming from the Shelton home, raising the probability that Shelton was kidnapped. The young man was assaulted with a host of foreign items, including a pool cue, leading his body to go into shock, which was fatal. After that, his body was dumped in San Bernardino County. Bonin and Butts came upon a 17-year-old West German student called Marcus Grabs, hitchhiking from the Pacific Coast Highway the next day. Grabs was bound with chain and ignition wire and taken to Bonin's house, where he was sodomized, beaten and stabbed 77 times before being dumped in Malibu Creek. His body was discovered the next morning with one investigator comparing the victim's network of injuries to that of a rabid dog unable to decide when to stop biting. Bonin and Butts kidnapped Donald Ray Hyden on August the 27th. At 1am, Hayden was last seen alive strolling down Santa Monica Boulevard. Later that morning, construction workers would discover his dead body in a dumpster near the Ventura Freeway's off-ramp. 
Haydn had been bound, beaten about the face, sodomized, stabbed in the neck and genitals, and bludgeoned about the head before dying by ligature strangulation. Attempts to remove his testicles and slice his throat were also evident. On September the 9th, two weeks after Haydn's murder, Bonin and Butts came across a 17-year-old Lamareda team named David Luis Murillo peddling to a movie theatre. Murillo was kidnapped and forced into Bonin's van where he was chained, uh, chained, raped repeatedly, bludgeoned in the head with a tire iron and strangled with a ligature before being dumped over an embankment into a bed of ivy along highway alongside Highway 101. On September the 17th, eight days after Murillo's murder, an 18-year-old Newport Beach team named uh, Robert Christopher Wirastek was taken while cycling to his grocery store employment. His body was discovered on September the 27th alongside Interstate 10. Bonin is not known to have killed again until on or around November the 1st, when he and Butts abducted and murdered an unidentified young man, estimated to be between 19 and 25 years old. The victim had been savagely beaten, then strangled to death before his body was discarded in an irrigation ditch alongside State Route 99, south of Bakersfield. Although never identified, Bonin later estimated the age of of this victim to be 23 and freely admitted to inserting an ice pick into the victim's nostrils and his ears prior to his murder. Four weeks later, Bonin would abduct and strangle Frank Dennis Fox, a 17-year-old bellflower teen, whose body was discovered two days later alongside the Ortega Highway, five miles east of San Juan Caspitrano. Fox's body showed symptoms of substantial blunt force damage to the face and the head, as well as ligature marks on his wrists and ankles, indicating that he was bound throughout his uh, throughout the ordeal. At the scene, no clothing or other identifying evidence was located. After leaving his parents' home to meet with friends 10 days after Fox's murder, a 15-year-old Long Beach teen named John Frederick Kilpatrick vanished. Kilpatrick was strangled to death and his body was dumped in a distant uh, rear... Rialto location. Kilpatrick was identified as a John Doe until August the 5th, 1980, when his body was discovered. Bonin brutalized and strangled a 16-year-old Ontario boy named Michael Francis MacDonald on January the 1st, 1980. His fully clothed body was discovered two days later alongside Highway 71 in western San Bernardino, San Bernardino County. That San Bernardino is out to get me, like, just always trips me up, always. Bonin and 18-year-old Gregory Miley went from Downey to Hollywood on February the 3rd with the express purpose of perpetrating another murder. The two came across a 15-year-old named Charles Miranda travelling alongside Santa Monica Boulevard near the Starwood nightclub. Bonin and Miranda uh, allegedly engaged in consensual sex in the back of the van while he drove, according, or while Miley drove, according to Miley, before Bonin whispered to Miley, kids are going to die. 
Miranda was subsequently overcome by Bonin, who demanded to know how much money Miranda had on him. When Miranda said that he only had about $6, Bonin told Miley to grab the used wallet before hitting him and knocking him down. Miranda was then chained and gagged by Bonin, who sexually assaulted him. Miley also tried to rape the adolescent but couldn't maintain um, an erection. Miley was enraged and hit Miranda with a variety of sharp instruments before assisting Bonin in beating the adolescent. Miley continuously leapt on Miranda's chest as Bonin strangled him to death with a t-shirt and a tire iron. His naked body was then subsequently thrown in an alleyway on Los Angeles East's 2nd Street. Five minutes after the pair had discarded Miranda's body, Bonin suggested to Miley, I'm horny again, let's go and do another one. A few hours later, the two met a 12-year-old boy named James McCab, 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 at a bus stop on the corner of Beach Boulevard and Slater Avenue in Huntington Beach. McCab was persuaded to get inside Bonin's van with the promise of being taken to Disneyland and the promise of marijuana. According to Miley, the boy voluntarily entered the back of the van while Bonin drove to a grocery store parking lot where he parked the vehicle and climbed into the van to hug and kiss McCab. The youth was then bound before being punched in the stomach, the mouth and the leg. As he drove, Miley continually heard McCab crying as Bonin bludgeoned him with a crowbar about the head before proceeding to rape him. Bonin then forced the boy to sleep in his arms. Before Bonin crushed McCab's neck with a crowbar, Miley joined Bonin in beating the child senseless merely because he felt like it. Bonin then strangled McCab with, uh, to death with his own t-shirt before tossing his body next to a dumpster at a Walnut City construction site. Three days later, McCab's body was discovered, naked from the waist down, with skull fractures and a damaged penis. Bonin was arrested on February the 4th for breaking his parole terms, and he was placed in jail at Orange County Jail until March the 4th. So shall we take a break? I, I think we should take a break. Erin and Stacy, take it away. true crime listeners check out our podcast i said god damn we're a true crime comedy podcast hosted by two besties who like to share messed up cases that make you say god damn every sunday we try to one-up each other's story by sharing a horrific case the other has never heard of along the way we splash in some wildly inappropriate jokes and colorful language listen every sunday from any of your favorite podcast directories also follow us on twitter at isgd podcast or visit our website isgdpodcast.com On March 14th, 10 days after being freed from custody, Bonin abducted and killed uh, Ronald Gatlin, an 18-year-old Van Noy's teen. Gatlin was kidnapped not long after leaving a friend's house. Before being strangled with a ligature, he was beaten, sodomized, and had multiple deep perforating ice pick cuts to the ear and neck. Gatlin's body, chained hand and foot, was discovered the next day in Duarte. Duarte? I think that's, it's spelt Duarte. 
So that's how I'm pronouncing it. <laughs> on March the 21st, a 14-year-old named Glenn Barker was hitchhiking to school when Bonin persuaded him into his van. Barker was also raped, beaten and strangled to death with a rope. His body also exhibited indications of many burns to the neck from a lit cigarette. Furthermore, Barker had been violated with foreign objects, causing his rectum to swell significantly. Russell Rue, uh, aged 15, was abducted from a bus stop at Garden Grove at 4pm on the same day. Rue was chained, beaten and strangled to death after an estimated eight hours of captivity before his body was dumped alongside Barker's near the Ortega Highway in Cleveland National Forest. The bodies of the young men were discovered naked on March the 23rd. One Friday evening on March 1980, Bonin offered a 17-year-old named William Ray Pugh a ride home as the pair left Fraser's house. Bonin asked Pugh if he wanted to have sex with him minutes after accepting the ride. Pugh subsequently alleged that when he heard this question, he panicked and stuttered, and that after sitting in silence for several minutes, he attempted to exit the car after Bonin had halted the van at a stoplight. Bonin leaned over and grabbed Pugh by the collar, dragging him into the passenger seat without saying a word. Bonin then told Pugh that he enjoyed kidnapping young male hitchhikers on Friday and Saturday evenings, restraining and abusing them before strangling them to death with their own t-shirts. In a matter-of-fact tone, Bonin then informed Pugh, if you want to kill somebody, you should make a plan and find a place to dump the body before you even pick a victim. Bonin then informed Pugh that he had been spared because the two had been spotted leaving Fraser's party together and that he had not chosen to withhold attacking and killing him out of sentiment. Pugh was not assaulted when being driven to his house. On March the 24th, Bonin and Pugh kidnapped Harry Todd Turner, a 15-year-old runaway from a Los Angeles street. Turner had run away from a boy's home in Lancaster, California, four days before meeting Bonin and Pugh. Later, Pugh would testify that he and Bonin enticed Turner into Bonin's van with a offer of sex, with a $20 sex offer. Bonin instructed Pugh to beat Turner up after binding, sodomizing, and biting the adolescent. Bonin strangled Turner to death with his own t-shirt before discarding the body at the back of a Los Angeles business after Pugh had bludgeoned and beaten him about the head and body for several minutes. Turner's autopsy found that the teen's genitals had been mutilated and that he had had eight fractures to his skull from a blunt instrument before being strangled. On the afternoon of April the 10th, Bonin abducted Stephen John Wood, a 16-year-old bellflower teen, as he walked to school after a dental appointment that morning. His naked, hogtied and severely battered body was dumped alongside a garbage can in a Long Beach alleyway near the Pacific Coast Highway. At the scene, no clothing or other identifying evidence was located. The youth was killed by illegitimate strangulation, according to his autopsy. Bonin and Butts persuaded a 19-year-old named Darren Kendrick into Bonin's vehicle on the pretense of selling the youth drugs three weeks later on April the 29th, while parked in the grounds of a Stanton supermarket. 
Kendrick was driven to Butts Flat where he was surrounded by both men and shackled. Kendrick was then forced to swallow hydrochloric acid by Bonin, suffering uh, caustic chemical burns to his mouth, chin, stomach and chest, in addition to sodomy and partial ligature strangulation. Butts then inserted an ice pick into Kendrick's ear, injuring his cervical spinal cords, his cervical spinal cord, and killing him. His body was dumped behind a warehouse near the um, near the Artesia freeway, with the ice pick Butts had drove into his head still protruding from his ear. Bonin would then kidnap and murder a 17-year-old acquaintance on May the 12th, subsequently claiming that he'd chosen to kill him when he awakened that morning because, simply, he was tired of having him around. Lawrence Sharp, the acquaintance in question, was found dead outside a Westminster gas station. Sharp's body was discovered on May the 18th, and an autopsy indicated that he had been chained and sodomized as well as beaten all over his face and body before being strangled with a rope. Bonin requested Butts to accompany him on a killing a week after Sharp's death on May 19th, but Butts apparently declined. Operating alone, Bonin kidnapped a 14-year-old Southgate teen named Sean King from a Downey bus stop, killed him, and dumped his body in Livoke Canyon, Eucapia. Eucapa? Eucapa? Eusapa, I think. <laughs> Bonin then went to Butt's house and boasted about the murder. On May the 28th, nine days after King's murder, Bonin invited James Michael Monroe, an 18-year-old homeless drifter, to move, in, move into the apartment he shared with his mother and elder brother, but only in exchange for sex. Monroe was a runaway from St. Clair, Michigan, who had fled the family house in early 1980. Monroe had intended to visit a friend in California, but wound up living on the streets instead. He had been a male prostitute in Hollywood for several weeks by May 1980. Monroe, a bisexual who favoured sexual interactions with females, began a consensual, consensual sexual relationship with Bonin while staying at the Um, Angel Street apartment. He also accepted a subsequent offer of employment at Bonin's uh, Montebello Delivery Company, where he was occasionally allowed to drive his van. Monroe later described his initial impressions of Bonin as being a good guy, really normal, which Bonin proved on the evening of June 1st, when he abruptly informed Monroe that he wanted the two of them to abduct, rape and kill a teenage hitchhiker. A good guy, really normal. And not a danger to society, remember guys. Not a danger to the health and safety of others. (laughs) So you'll notice before that sassy remark, I haven't made many of them. Many because I don't know how I can on this episode without coming off as a massive douche. <laughs> so this has been a, probably a bit more of a serious one that I would norm than I would normally make it. But I, I don't really know where I can um, where I can put my sarcastic comments in and not come off as just a bit heartless. <laughs> but 
we are nearly done. We're nearly done with the murders and we're nearly done with part one. So hang on tight, gang. The finish line, we're on the home stretch. We're on the home stretch. By early 1980, the killings perpetrated by Bonin and his associates had gotten a lot of media attention and leading gay rights groups had offered a $50,000 reward for information leading to the conviction of the murderer or perpetrators. Bonin was a ferocious reader of news media coverage about his crime and he saved newspaper cuttings recording his own manhunt, which is just a little bit egotistical. It reminds me a little bit of BTK in in that sense. BTK thought he was the best thing since sliced bread. So yeah, that reminds me of that a little bit. Investigators from the many jurisdictions where victims had been abducted or discovered had begun sharing information in their collective manhunt for the offender, having established a solid link between many of the murders committed during the previous year. Six officers from three of the jurisdictions where the freeway killer had most frequently abducted or dumped the bodies of his victims formed a task force dedicating to apprehending the suspect or suspects, who, according to one of the officers of this assembled task force, were striking an average rate of once every two weeks in the spring of 1980. Pugh had been arrested for also theft in May 1980 and was being held at the Lo- at the Los Padrinos Juvenile Courthouse. On May the 28th, he overheard details of the ongoing murders on a local radio station and told a counsellor that he recognised the perpetrator's modus operandi as the one given to him by Bonin two months prior. I just had to say modus operandi instead of mode of operation. Modus operandi just sounds so much better, and it makes me sound far, far more intelligent than I actually am. St. John conducted an extended interview with Pew the next day after receiving the confidential tip from the counsellor. Despite the fact that Pew did not reveal that he had accompanied Bonin on one of his murders, The facts he supplied led St. John to believe that Bonin was the freeway killer. A police investigation into Bonin's background revealed his extensive history of convictions for sexually assaulting teenage boys. St. John assigned a surveillance team to monitor Bonin's movements and the surveillance of Bonin began on the evening of June 2nd, 1980. On the evening of June the 2nd, Bonin and Monroe spotted an 18-year-old print shop worker named uh, Stephen J. Wells standing at a bus stop on El Segundo Boulevard only hours before police began surveillance on him. The youth was persuaded into the van by Bonin and Monroe. Bonin and Monroe claimed that after, after discovering Wells was bisexual, Bonin had consensual relations with him in the back of his van before enticing the teen to accompany him to his parents' house, where the two had more sexual relations on Bonin's parents' bed. Bonin then instructed Monroe to go out and get burgers, and when Monroe returned, Bonin persuaded Wells to let himself be tied up for $200. When Monroe entered the room, Bonin offered Wells another $200 if he would allow Monroe to have sex with him. Wells started to become agitated as he became suspicious. Bonin then told Monroe that they were both going to kill Wells before gagging and thrashing his hostage, telling him, you're going to do what I tell you to do, while Wells pleaded for his life. Bonin 
then stole $10 from Wells's wallet before stating his intention to leave his body on a park bench somewhere. He then strangled Wells to death with a t-shirt and a tire iron before ordering Monroe to retrieve a cardboard box from his, bu- from his brother's room. The two then placed Wells's body inside the cardboard box, which they then carried to Bonin's van. Bonin then drove to Butts's Lakewood apartment as he informed Monroe that he, Butts and others had committed many of the freeway, mur- freeway killer murders. At Butts's apartment, Bonin first invited him to view Wells's body with the enticement, we got it in the van. It's a good one. Come on out and see it. According to Monroe, Butts, who had been cosplaying as Darth Vader, replied upon viewing and poking the body, oh, you got another one. He further went on to compliment Bonin, expressing that he was proud of Bonin, stating, good job, Billy. You really did a good one. Following that, Bonin sought counsel on how to dispose of the body. Monroe described Butts' reaction at Bonin's later trial. Try a gas station, like, or where, I don't know which, we dumped the last one. Monroe later testified that Butts actively discouraged Bonin, Bonin from dumping the used body in the adjacent canyons, owing to the late hour and increased police presence resulting from recent media attention. On the way to finding a spot to dump the body, Bonin and Monroe encountered a police car in which Bonin jokingly quipped, Hey, pig man, you ought to see what we've got in here. They would then drive to a deserted Huntington Beach gas station where they had a piss and then investigated the surroundings. Wells' body was discovered five hours later. When Bonin returned to his Angel Street home, he bit into his Big Mac burger before saying, thanks, Steve, and repeated the phrase as he glanced down to the floor, adding, wherever you are. Then he and Monroe burst out laughing. And that's where we will leave part one. I can hear the collective sighs of relief now. Everyone's like, fuck it out. Thank fuck that's over. <laughs> Oh, this man. Oh, Jesus Christ. Um, so you'll also be happy to know that that is, I'm pretty sure that are all the murders done. That's the murder spree finished. And part two will be out next week and we'll go into the trial of William Bonin and the aftermath. In the meantime... Follow the podcast on Instagram and Twitter at horrorhouse underscore pod and give the Facebook page a like at horrorhousepod. You can also find the podcast on pretty much any platform, Spotify, Apple Podcast, etc, etc. Please check out the merch store, which is linked in the Instagram bio and on the website horrorhousetruecrime.com. And please don't forget to rate and review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. So, all that's left to say is, until next time, stay spooky. <laughs>